Do you want your middle school girl to grow into a strong, confident, and resilient young adult? So do I. The only thing is, middle school's hard for both kids and parents. Welcome to the Raising Middle School Girls podcast. I'm Janice Scholl, and I'm just a regular parent on a mission to uncover the best tips and advice for raising middle school girls. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Raising Middle School Girls. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Erin Kendall-Brown, and she is a cognitive neuroscientist, an entrepreneur, and an expert on how humans think. I've brought her here today because I want to talk about the pressure cooker. We all know that the world really changes for our students once they hit middle school, but I don't think that we're really addressing what we're doing to our kids as we're creating an academic environment that is really built on pressure and stress. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kendall. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. To get started, can you just give me an understanding? Like, we've heard cognitive neuroscientist, but like, what exactly do you do? Yeah, so a cognitive neuroscientist is basically the intersection of psychology and trying to understand how the brain supports those psychological processes. So for me, my research studied things like learning, memory, and decision-making. And in addition to understanding how those processes worked in people, um, I was additionally understand, interested in understanding how the brain supports those processes. You know, we started talking before we hit record, and I wanted to kind of talk about that because a lot of your experience has been within the college setting. And can you tell me a little bit about how college kids are reacting to kind of that next step in life? And then I want to work back from there and how that applies to our middle schoolers. So I did my graduate work at Columbia University. And as part of that, I was a teaching assistant in the psychology department. I almost always taught in the spring semester. And just as a byproduct of that, I would usually have seniors in my class who, and it was like spring break, they'd come back from spring break and all of a sudden I would have them in my office hours, and it was probably two, three, four, five every single year who were just in tears because they, up until that point, they, somebody had always told them what came next, right? It was like, oh, you, we are doing all of middle school so that we can get you into a good high school, make sure you're in the honors track and all that in high school. And we're going to have you do all these extracurriculars and take all the AP classes in high school so that we can get you into the very best college. And in college, you're going to do all these things, da, 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 so that, you know, you can, you know, be successful. But, you know, so everyone's trying to do this thing called be successful. But what that looks like all of a sudden, there's unless there's oftentimes a big gap. And sometimes what my students, I saw them do is they're like, well, I know how to be a student, so I will go to grad school. And I saw so many students apply to grad school or law school or, you know, try to get an MBA or what have you, because they knew how to be a student. And they were like, well, this is definitely on the road to be successful. And I, I know how to do this. And as an adult who kind of took a wavy path to get to where I am today, you know, I was just looking at these students who had a Columbia University education and were so smart and so bright and so motivated and had so many things that they were interested in and passionate about, um, but had really just been living this narrow little life to get to this like magical place um, so that they could be successful, that they were in many ways, I think, blind to all the opportunities and those exciting things that they could go out and like explore and pursue. And, you know, and I, I think it was actually really, really hard to suddenly be at this place where it was like this wide open array of things that they could try out. Yeah. You know, and it's, I I think some of it is our fear of failure, right? Mm -hmm. Because 
if you haven't had to figure it out on the long and winding road yet, then it's kind of intimidating and you think that there is just one right answer. And I think it has also to do with how we over plan for our kids perhaps these days. And that I think starts in middle school. Oh, absolutely. And I think actually, yeah, it's interesting. Let's start with the the fear of failure. So one of the things that I study in my particular dissertation work was how we learn from feedback, right? And, you know, a lot of the type of experiments that we did, it was like, oh, you have to do this thing, but you have to learn something. I'm not even going to tell you what you're really supposed to be learning. I just want you to use trial and error and figure it out. And if you do the right thing, you're going to get a reward. If you don't, you'll get a punishment. In this case, we're giving people small amounts of money and taking them away. And it turns out that learning from reward drives learning from feedback in, in a very broad sense, basically drives learning. And I think parents, because we're trying to protect our kids and even other like people in our lives from like those negative experiences, we don't learn how to take a quote unquote bad experience or negative feedback or something like that and, and learn from it so that we can use that information going forward. And I think that fear of failure, I mean, I, I saw it so much in my college students and I often, twice I taught stats, which means that for a lot of students, I handed them back their first C of their life. Yeah. Their first C, right? And that's not pleasant. And I, in at Columbia, I, t- I personally walked students over to mental health because I was unsure that they could, that they would keep, remain safe while they process that information. Wow. Right? That is, a, you know, obviously there's many, many, many factors that lead to that kind of experience. But I think we, like you, none of us will go through life without some, some metaphorical C in our life. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think we need to be starting to teach our kids how to deal with those from, you know, as little as we can muster, which is so hard to watch. I have a friend and she had her kid. I was, I was at her house last weekend and you know, her son accidentally kind of got swindled by the big kids at summer camp to give that they, they swindled away his like good Pokemon cards because they told him they were fake. And, you know, on one hand that I, I completely understand was a crushing, almost, you know, six-year-old experience, right? Oh, he had just turned mm-hmm. six. And on the other hand, I was like, what a great learning opportunity. <laughs> Yes. You know, like, obviously you want to sit there and empathize with him. And I'm like, oh, I am so sorry. Those kids, like whatever. But like, what can we learn from this opportunity? Like, how do we not want to treat the little kids in our life? How can we think about, you know, how can we both be trusting of people, but also, you know, a little healthy skepticism goes a long way. And like, when you're not sure, who can we turn to? What can you do? Like, let's learn some agency about how you can learn to navigate these situations by yourself. And obviously that's not like a terrible crisis, but it's a really interesting way to think about how do we build in those experiences for our children and our daughters in particular, so that there's never an expectation of perfection. I think when I, I, I'm a very early millennial. And so I went through... Life, I think actually when I was in, uh, it was more high school, but it was a process of like needing to be so perfect so that I could get into the right college. Mm-hmm. Like, and I remember one year, it was my sophomore, and it was so hard because there was all this pressure and it was both explicit and implicit and so that you can be successful. And I remember one year, it was my sophomore year of high school. I was 
if I could take one single point and divide it amongst three classes, I could have gotten three more A pluses. And I came home in absolute tears. And it was so hard because I had one parent who was mad at me because I didn't get all the A pluses and another parent who just thought I was being completely absurd for overreacting so much. You know, and then I'm like sitting there fraught as a sophomore in high school, rehearsing and regurgitating every single test. And I could tell you, I'm at the point, I can't anymore. Although I can still tell you one of the things I lost. I, I can still remember one of the points I lost in French, right? And it's like 20 some odd years later. And it was years later that I could tell you exactly every single fractional point that I lost in all three of those classes. Yeah. That's weird. <laughs> that is not <laughs> healthy. And nor did it really help me become a better adult in any way. But I think, I think there's so much pressure for our students to get into a very select number of schools that that seemed like a really, really big thing at the time. Yeah. You know, and I see, I think it used to happen in high school, right? Mm -hmm. But, but now it's starting as young as middle school and it's part of us as parents helping our kids creating that plan for them because we don't want them to miss out on the opportunity. It's like mm -hmm. this FOMO of this awesome academic college experience, I think, that us parents have for our kids before they're even really un old enough to understand what an Ivy League college means. Or, you know, so we're really promoting this stress in the, in the best intended ways, right? Like we are truly doing it to help our kids. But but what you're telling us is that we may in fact be buffering them from those life experiences that they need so that when they kind of deal with the hard stuff on their own one day, that they have those internal resources to be able to do so. And I, I mean, just like the kind of extreme example of that. I um, taught as part of my Columbia when I was in grad, before I got in grad school, but I taught in a developmental course where we had like weekly hands-on work with a classroom of toddlers. So like two-year-olds. It was really fun. I was like hands-on learning and I, it was great. But I remember in that class, I had um, one of the parents of a two-year-old ask me what they should be doing for their kids so that they would get into Columbia. And I was like, well, the first step is potty training. <laughs> yeah. Like number one, underwear. And I, I understand the anxiety, but I think it's actually, I would like to just put out a public service announcement. I went to Columbia both as an undergrad and also as a, um, as a grad student, which means I saw both Columbia from a, a student's perspective and also as a teaching perspective. And I also, just as I've already mentioned, a little bit of a windy road here. I also have an undergraduate degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Turned out fine, everybody. But Everybody is like, oh, Columbia is this magical, it is the pinnacle or, you know. And so, um, but honestly, the teaching at Columbia was no better than it was at Madison. At Madison, I had to hunt down the really good classes. It'd be really proactive and talk to people about who the good professors were and what was going on and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I could get just as good of a, an education at, at Madison as I could at Columbia. And I have to say, my friends who graduated from University of Wisconsin-Madison, who granted were all super smart and top achievers and just really motivated um, and excited about things in the world, have actually been the ones to go on and do really, really interesting things. Whereas a lot of my friends who I went to school with when I was at Columbia largely went to go, you know, into management consulting and law school and, you know, like these kind of obvious tracks. 
And, you know, there's nothing wrong with management consulting, nor like the world needs lawyers, like MBAs, like you can learn lots of useful skills there, et cetera. Like I'm not disparaging those things at all, but it's my friends who went to Madison who are actually doing the things that people are like, oh, that's cool. You know, like nobody's like, oh, you know, you study tax law. Cool. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> you know, so I think that's also just something, but I think there is this sort of false narrative that to be successful, you have to graduate from one of, depending on your definition of successful, 10, 12, 15, 20, 25 schools or whatever your personal list is. Yeah. And, you know, if you wanted to see one thing happening in middle schools that mm -hmm. could kind of change the perspective of students and or their parents, because they're so directly correlated, what would it be? Well, I think I'm a little biased right now because it's something I'm really working on in my professional, personal life. Um, but I really existed for a very long time in super intense burnout culture to the point that I basically don't know how to do anything if it is not a crisis. <laughs> right? You are not the only one. <laughs> no, it's like I don't even know how to operate. For example, I do consulting and so I have things that I do for clients, not surprisingly, and I have to work myself up into a tizzy just to get it done because I only know how to deliver and perform like at that super ramped up stress cycle, despite the fact that I've very much deliberately designed a life for myself that really requires, I shouldn't be stressed out about anything. And that I think began somewhere just started in middle school and got coalesced somewhere before my sophomore year of high school. And I think that I learned somewhat from the people around me, from those tacit expectations. Like if I wasn't super stressed out, I wasn't doing everything I could be to, and I'm using air quotes over here, be capital S successful. And obviously in academia, frankly, I did, you know, through grad school, I think that was really, really reinforced that if, if you weren't grinding it to the bone and doing everything and above everything else and doing more than everyone else, it wasn't enough. But I think, in fact, it was just sacrificing my physical and psychological well-being for this arbitrary thing that actually made my performance worse. Let's talk about the performance piece of that, because, I, you know, I think we often engage in the burnout culture, A, because we think it's expected, and B, because mm -hmm. we think there's a benefit to it. I, I just don't see any other way. We are doing it because we think we have no choice but to chase that thing, and we yeah. need to keep doing it. So what is that burnout and that stress really doing on our learning and our potential and what we're, what we're achieving? All right. So question, do you think stress is good or bad for learning? Learning, memory, cognition? I, I think there's probably up, up to a point it's probably a certain amount is good, right? Mm -hmm. But then it, you, but if you hit that that critical mass, if you go, if you go over, then I think it's probably really bad. Cause I'm thinking about myself. Like I am not a person who's naturally motivated on her own to just like get up and do the hard work. I kind of need something to kick me a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I need a little bit of stress, but then if I have too much stress, then it's paralysis. Then I can't get anything done. Um, wow. You have just summed up something. Well, basically the one law in psychology is called the Yerkes Dotson law. And it is basically what you just described on the Y axis. It's an inverted U shape. So like a rainbow shape where on the um, X axis, you have arousal, which stress is a really, really good example of. And on the Y axis, you have performance. And so basically across almost all cognitive tasks, if you have no arousal whatsoever, so you have no stress, nothing going on, you, performance actually tends to be pretty low. So you can imagine like you just roll out of bed first thing in the morning, 
it is not a great time for me to hand you a multiple choice test, right? However, as your stress level increases, basically your performance is going to increase up until a maximum point, and at which point it starts to decline. Classic, classic example of Yerkes Dotson in our lives. So the question is that everyone would ask at this point is, well, what's the right amount of stress? And the thing is, is that really varies by person. And then it also varies within person. So for example, I had a math teacher when I was in middle school, Mr. Hall, if you're listening, and he used to play um, jock jams before every single math test, right? Clearly Mr. Hall, and we would get ready to rumble, right? <laughs> and so Mr. Hall would, you know, and then we, yes. And so he clearly was somebody who knew that he needed to get ramped up to take his test at, at peak level. Also, I had a professor in a college who used to play like very calming, like Debussy before every test. So she was clearly somebody who personally needed to be calmed down before a test. Like she sat up too high on that Yerkes Dotson curve and had learned that it was like best to calm down. So now the thing is, is that her, we need to figure out the right match to each student, right? Like some of our students, we definitely need to calm down before a test. And in other students, we definitely need them to get like, you know, ramped up. Another thing, though, is that even within a person that varies by tasks, so tasks typically that are easier are things that you need less stress to do. So for me, you know, it's like that admin, the organizational stuff, the sending off the quick email doesn't require much. But for me to like create an entire proposal for somebody, that's going to take a lot more um, stress to get me up to that place where I feel comfortable doing it. And also over time, things change. And so again, as things become easier, you learn them, it requires generally less arousal to get you to do that at peak, at peak performance. So as far as an acute stressor goes, we'll talk about that in a moment. Yes, there is a right amount of stress that actually helps us perform better on most types of cognition. However, you'll notice there was a caveat in there. And I was talking about, with Yerkes Dotson, we're always talking about acute stress. And so I'm going to back up a little bit and just talk about kind of biologically how, what stress is and how it works. And I'm going to borrow pretty heavily from a book, which is called um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, which is by Robert Sapolsky. And the central metaphor of the book is that zebras don't get ulcers. And we ask, why don't zebras get ulcers? And the reason is, is because zebras sit out on the savanna eating most of the time and resting and relaxing and being pretty chill zebras. But if something comes up, like for example, there's a lion nearby, all of a sudden it goes from this nice rest and relax state and shifts very quickly into a stress response, right? And in that shift, it basically is going to just take off and run, okay? So you just have this, this like, all the body's resources shift from the things that are useful when you're resting and relaxing to promote basically short-term survival. So you, um, heart rate increases, so blood actually moves from, to basically concentrates away from, for example, the digestive system, and that energy goes to the cardiovascular system to make sure that you can run. Um, it changes how sugar is stored in your body so that you have all the sugar you want is available to you. It changes um, things like attention. So attention becomes incredibly focused. You ignore all the peripheral stuff and you just become laser focused on getting out there now, right? But there is actually a cost to that, right? You're actually shifting resources from the things that are good for the long term. So things like your immune system, reproductive system, digestive system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all these like important long-term things. And you shift them over to be really basically supporting short-term survival, which for a zebra outrunning a lion makes complete sense. Like it, there's no point digesting dinner if you're not going to make it to dinner, you know, tomorrow. It turns out though that, um, humans are mostly chronically stressed these days. We're not just responding to a metaphorical 
zebra, you know, metaphorical lion in our world, although we do have metaphorical lions in our world. Uh, we instead, though, are just chronically stressed about all the big things going on in all our lives. The thing is, is that we're using that same stress response, which is designed to outrun a lion, to cope with things like getting into college, which means that your body is doing all these things that are good in the short term for you know that short-term crisis, but those actually are usually very, very detrimental to long-term well-being. So for example, people who have chronically high-level stress and have digestive issues, long-term reproductive issues, which is not things we want for our young daughters. We don't want all sorts of mental health issues emerge from chronic stress. Cardiovascular issues, um, the whole sugar balance thing becomes an issue that turns to diabetes. The suppression of the immune system leads to things like cancer. And this is something that we're mostly, I don't want to say we're all doing it to ourselves because there's obviously this huge cultural element that I don't want to dismiss because it's really, you know, it's not negligible. But there are all these huge physical costs. Oh, and then oh, we haven't even got to the cognitive ones. And then cognitively, basically, if you, one of the areas of the brain that's really important for making new memories, which is obviously important for our students, is the hippocampus. It's um, not where our memories are stored, but it is essential for creating new memories. It turns out that the hippocampus has these receptors that um, basically are receptors for glucocorticoids, i.e. the stress hormones like cortisol, which is good because you probably want to remember stressful events like there being a lion out there. You want to say, aha, I want to remember when and where I saw that lion because that is important information. But the problem is if you're chronically stressed, what ends up happening is you get hippocampal shrinkage. It actually results in less neurogenesis, less synaptogenesis, all sorts of molecular level changes to the hippocampus, which is not good for, for long-term cognition. More so, we really want people our, our, to, oftentimes, our, our world right now really is encouraging people to think very flexibly and trade off um, decision-making according to really kind of flexible goals. So I don't always want to be doing things one way. I want to say, oh, right now my goals are like this, so I want to behave this way. But something about high levels of stress actually pushes us to be much more habitual. And so that's one of the reasons why when you feel really stressed out, it's like, you know, it's Thai food and Netflix instead of like working out and reading, you know, war and peace or whatever, you know, that, that other goal is, right? You just kind of shift down in, when you're stressed out, you're going to shift down into your most habitual behavior. All right. So the last thing is, remember how I talked about focus becoming really, yes. really narrow? Um, that's really fantastic. If you're just like, I am going to focus only on that lion and like my destination and getting as much space between those two things as possible. It is less good when we want our kids or myself personally to be thinking creatively and you know you know how it's it's like never when you sit down to like have a creative thought that you find the creative thought it's always like while you're in the shower or while you're walking somewhere and it's like aha um it's like your attention wasn't laser focused on coming up with that creative thought when you're stressed out what you're doing is you're essentially focusing you're keeping yourself in that really focused state kind of chronically and not allowing your brain to kind of be in that relaxed state that allows you to like you know, kind of be exploring new novel ideas, taking in, you know, the kind of disparate ideas that get combined together to make a new novel idea. It's really, really, really hard to have that kind of creative thought when you're really, really stressed out. And so I would say if I, I don't have a middle school daughter, but if I did, it's not that I want to shield my kids from stress because it's a part of our modern lives and it's really important. And honestly, it helps like those feelings of, I guess something I'd want to communicate to my daughter is that those feelings of stress that you get when you're under pressure are actually your body's way of telling you, hey, I am kicking in 
to help you be on your top game. So right now, I'm obviously a little stressed. I'm under an interview. The stress that I have is helping me remain really focused and really on point and making sure that my attention is where it's at and I'm motivated and I'm not distracted and I'm, you know, hopefully remembering things as well as possible. However, so it's like those feelings of clamminess and like, you know, all the feelings that we have when we're stressed out. Those are all signals that my body's doing what it's supposed to be doing to help me through this. But I equally need to help the young adults around me and some of the adults learn how to not be in that chronically stressed state all the time. So it's a learning, not just, it's like, oh, it's okay to be stressed. And in fact, it's good and it's helpful. It's just figuring out how to let go of that and relax and like not be there all the time. That's the challenge. Yeah. I really like the way that you broke this down for us because, you know, we hear that stress is bad for us and everybody's like, yeah, I'll, I'll read an article on that one day and it's never going to happen. But you've really broken it down into all of the ways that it genuinely affects us, not just our push through mental well-being. It is actually triggering us to not be as effective in our work or home life, potentially. It is actually triggering us and setting us up, I guess, physiologically to be more unhealthy than the alternative. But my question is, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of things. One, we have to train our body to not be in that all the time. And then another thing that you mentioned was how important it is for us to be flexible in today's world. You know, the fluidity of today's world is stressful, right? Because it feels like there's not that much certainty and yet there's plenty of pressure. And so it feels like conditions are ripe for staying in the stress response what are some things we can teach our girls to do to help them get out of that? Okay. So I have sort of two different levels of response. I'll do kind of my standard, my standards first. Number one. So it turns out that there's, when we're shifting between this like stressed out state and this more relaxed state, um, we can actually look back to our zebra example. When the zebra outran the lion, it had to run. And there's something about cardiovascular activity that automatically, as soon as you finish cardiovascular activity, it sends out a cascade of endocannabinoids. And that is a signal to your body, like in the same way a cortisol is a, stim is a signal to your body to say, hey, I need you to amp up that stress response. The endocannabinoids are the signal that tells your body or one of the signals that tells your body, it's okay. Now we need to shift back over into that relaxed state. So just daily cardio really is like physiologically will help. So that's um, probably number one. Number two, um, I would make sure that everybody involved is getting plenty of sleep. It turns out that not sleeping in and of itself is a stressor. So let's not, let's not add a stressor on top of a stressor. Although I will acknowledge that when you're stressed out, it actually disrupts your sleep cycle, which disrupts memory consolidation, which is a whole thing. So I would just prioritize getting you know a lot of sleep, especially our adolescents need more than they're willing to, to get. I will let everybody do their best on that front. Another thing is we know that social interaction is really important. So I, if I have this conversation with students, I oftentimes will talk to them about, you know, on one hand, making sure that you have people in your life that you can turn to when it's, times are rough and investing in those relationships so that, you know, they're there. Um, and also being the kind of friend that other people can turn to when they go through difficult times. We can't always get other people to do things, but we can be the kind of friend that 
naturally, you're doing what you can on your side of the relationship to develop long-term relationships that are really supportive. And I, you know, just on the middle school girlfriend, I have made middle school, so one of my middle school girlfriends, we just, you know, scheduled a phone date. We probably talk once a month, but you know, she's somebody I turn to still to this day. And I'm like, hey, I'm, this is what I'm going through. I don't know how to deal with X, Y, Z. And she's both a sounding board and also somebody who just helps me generate ideas. And also we just kind of kvetch together and, you know, gossip and, you know, complain and all the, all the other usual good things. And so I think that's really important. For reasons which I don't know why, journaling tends to be, it looks like it shows signs of helping people reduce stress. So that's kind of an easy one to do. People are like, what's the mechanism? How does it work? I have no idea. And the last one is just to have hobbies and things that you do simply for fun. And I think especially for me, it was more when I hit high school, but I did not do anything if it was not going to show up on my college resume. And so, you know, I think our kids and need to have time and space and energy for the kinds of things that are not in any way that you just do for pleasure, that you're not expecting to write a college essay about or expecting to use to get a graduation. Like I would say, you know, volunteering or participating in a play or so those are kind of the things that I usually put out there. I have a second tier, which is kind of things that I'm learning more in my adult life. And it is the amazing power of being really focused on what matters to me and saying no to pretty much everything else. So, um, and this is something, you know, I didn't start learning until I was in my thirties, you know, no, no big expectation there, but just starting to say no to things and feeling like doing fewer things, but being really, 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 really good at them and really, really investing in them is so much more powerful than, um, doing everything for the sake of doing everything. I know Cal Newport has actually written a book about this. He, before he was all about um, writing about deep work and stuff, he did write a whole bunch of books about being a college student and, and, or getting into college. And I remember one of the things that I found really interesting is that colleges, because everybody has those like resumes where they've done three varsity sports and like two volunteer projects and have set up their own NGO and like, you know, did a travel abroad three times and have done a semester of college, you know, starting and saw so every year, starting in sophomore year. It's like everybody has such overwhelming things that the things that really distinguish students in the college admissions project process is somebody who's like really made progress on like one thing that really, really matters. And so that by saying no, it actually allows you to just flourish in a space. So yeah, so I would just, okay. So an example would be um, when I, so I did undergrad at University of Wisconsin-Madison and then I figured out I wanted to be a neuroscientist. And so I went back to school to Columbia and I did another two years ish of college after that. And during that time, I knew I wanted to apply to PhD programs. And so I did school, hung out with my friends, and basically spent every hour that I could getting into lab and just doing, uh, just like being there, doing what I could. And I, you know, was at Columbia University and by saying no to everything else, like I didn't even take, I took classes because I wanted to, because they were interesting, because I wanted to learn from them or they were just a requirement and I had to. But I really didn't do other things other than hang out in New York City and spend quality time with my friends. I wasn't super stressed out because I wasn't doing everything. And I just invested all of my spare time into a lab such that when I graduated, the, the professor who ran the lab, she reached out to me. I was like, any chance you want a job? And that job led to research experience, which made me incredibly competitive, such that I got into grad school at Columbia. 
But if I had been doing everything, I wouldn't have just spent like showing up in lab to see if anybody needed any help. They're like, oh, we need this filed. And I was like, I know how to file. <laughs> like, yeah. um, but like those boring things meant that when they all of a sudden there was this Parkinson's disease study that they just needed an extra pair of hands on, I was the obvious choice. And then all of a sudden there was a grant that could pay me. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's harder for our younger kids to be really focused because they don't even know what they want, right? They're still being yeah. curious. But I think as parents, this is really one of the things that we have to model because- yeah. Later on in life, when, you know, back to what we started talking about with the students who were ready to graduate and didn't know what to do next, um, that's the point where you want a person to know how to build boundaries and how to Mm -hmm. set priorities. And so if they're watching us as parents, and I'll be honest, it's like, definitely like low on my skills list. I am not a good boundary setter, but I've gotten a lot better um, the last few years. And it's mostly, I think, out of necessity. I think you do have to go through a point of pressure to really get good at it, most people, because it's not our nature. It is our nature to try to do too much. But I do, I think this is something that parents have to show not tell our kids to do. Mm-hmm. You've given us so much so much insight into stress and some of the science behind why that's important because we're we're in a world that is incredibly stressful. It is incredibly fluid and we need our kids to be able to think creatively and clearly when they're being chased by the lion, right? Um, and, and we can't really use those muscles or overuse those muscles when we're not. And so it's really helpful. Kendall, thank you so much for joining us today. And, you know, can you share where people can find you if they want to learn more about your work? Yes. So if you basically are working on some project in areas like education, healthcare, climate change, DEI issues, and you work on a product that helps basically solve one of those problems, I would love to learn more about it and see if I can help you make it just really excellent using what we know about human cognition and behavior. The best ways to reach out to me is by connecting to me through LinkedIn, which is going to be in the, I imagine, the show notes below, and also, or via my email, which will also be in the show notes. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kendall. Ah, Thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Do you want your middle school girl to grow into a strong, confident, and resilient young adult? So do I. The only thing is, middle school's hard for both kids and parents. Welcome to the Raising Middle School Girls podcast. I'm Janice Scholl, and I'm just a regular parent on a mission to uncover the best tips and advice for raising middle school girls. Thank you for listening to the Raising Middle School Girls podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more conversations with experts designed to help you support your middle school girl, please hit subscribe. You can also sign up for the newsletter at the link in the show notes to receive emails about tips and resources, upcoming events, and new podcast episodes, all designed to support you and your child.